0: me a year ago, I I truly would not have dreamt of having these kinds of conversations with people like this and the many potential opportunities that have been unveiled.
1: If you are a creative in the entertainment industry looking for inspiration and practical ideas about how to take the next steps in your career, you are in the right place. My name is Rebecca Doyle, and I work in film and television in Los Angeles. I learned so much from the ups and downs of the talented, innovative people surrounding me, and I want to share those insights with you. Join in every other week to hear the break-in stories of people who overcame challenges and found unconventional avenues to pursue their dream careers in an industry that has no set path. Welcome to our first full interview episode of No Set Path. I am so excited for today's guest, and he had so much valuable insight to share, which is why this is going to be a longer-than-average episode. Brian M. Tang is an Asian-American director based in Los Angeles. His original SWAT Samurai action short film, Kodama, will have its world premiere at South by Southwest 2023. His recent directing work includes projects for virtual production company, Impossible Objects, and Many Moons, a film shot on location, and in real time in the path of totality of the 2017 total solar eclipse. Informing his director sensibilities are his extensive background in cinematography and VFX. Brian's DP work has appeared at the Telluride Film Festival, Cannes Film Festival, the Student Academy Awards, and on Netflix. We are covering so much good stuff today. Everything from how Brian made an original film that got into one of the most major festivals to How that film started getting the attention of the biggest agencies and production companies even before the film screened at a festival. And most important, how he got here, what steps he was taking, who he reached out to and how, how he identified what values and stories he truly wanted to tell and found the right collaborators and what he did when things got tough. Let's jump into the interview. Brian, thank you so much for being the first guest on the
0: podcast. Thank you for having me.
1: So the way that i like to structure this is to first talk about some things that you have going on that are really exciting, and then talk about the path that led you here. And then I have a fun time capsule segment I want to do at the end that someone can come back to years from now and hear about this point in your career. So first of all, there's a lot of excitement going on with your short film, Kodama. Can you give us the latest?
0: I think at the moment of recording, we just finished post-production so we sent it off to the dcp company that will send it to south by and south by is going to you know obviously screen it and it's going to be a great time uh south by was such a big unexpected uh moment i i i I literally did not send it to any other film festival i don't know if i told you that but this south by is the only festival that i sent it to and why is that I think because I wasn't expecting this kind of film to get into a festival like that, or Why? maybe maybe because we were still a work in progress cut at the time we submitted, and there was still a lot left to be desired for the visual effects. But to their credit, they saw past that, and uh, you know we're kind of reaping the benefits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really proud of the film, and I'm really excited to show it at South by though because it's. It's come a long way, and I'm, I'm. There's so many, so many exciting conversations I'm having with people right now about the future of this project, and what South by has given to me and to everybody who worked on the project is something to really kind of be proud of and showcase, and to like hopefully bring onto what might be a future version of this.
1: And are you able to talk about any of those opportunities that are coming about from Kodama?
0: I guess like a very recent update was that I signed with UTA and this is all because they had seen a little teaser that I had uh, for Kodama and the conversations kind of snowballed into like getting to know each other and how this could, you know, turn into a really fruitful collaboration. You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's really early in the, in the, in the process right now. So I can't really speak to a lot of the details. And I'm I'm really new to this right now. So I'm very much in a learning state. But man, it's really exciting to have these conversations because me a year ago, I, d- I truly would not have d- dreamt of having these kinds of conversations with people like this and the many potential opportunities that have been kind of unveiled.
1: So you said that they saw the teaser, I'm assuming, as part of of the announcement for your admission for to South by Southwest, is that correct? Right. Yeah. And you say that you submitted the work in progress. Was that same teaser that UTA saw the same one that you submitted to South by?
0: The teaser was really just like a short sizzle of what the film was. It was basically a trailer. And I like I hadn't posted the movie movie anywhere yet because obviously it was still being worked on and but I I felt like I had a responsibility to the people who backed it on Kickstarter to kind of give them something to kind of forward to um so i put together a little teaser put it on the kickstarter and that little trailer got passed around a little bit and i guess that's how that went
1: and for south by as well i i know we hear a lot from people that there is a lot of networking going on there's a lot of contacting people that might already work at the festival south by is so competitive Was there any of that on your end or were there additional resources that you were able to pull in or did you submit the film as it was and with the trailer and um, just hope for the best?
0: I mean, honestly, I'm not joking when I say that I really did not expect the reception I was getting from South by and like a lot of people who have now seen the film. And I guess this kind of speaks to like a certain stigma I had in my mind about the kind of film I was making. But truthfully, I just wanted to make a film that I really wanted to see personally and I didn't really think too deeply about film festivals. So as soon as we got the acceptance from South by, I suddenly had to like do all the research as to what that <laughs> entailed, because I've never really been to a film festival uh, beyond like let alone like South by right like South by or like the big festivals like Sundance or Tribeca or all those things, right? Like those those festivals have been kind of like a untouchable Milestone in the future of some, even though distant- your work
1: has showcased your cinematography yeah. <laughs> work, which we'll get into in a little bit, has showcased at some of those major film festivals.
0: uh Yeah, I mean it's, I guess it's interesting because I've I've uh, there's a lot of new states of mind that I've been adapting recently, and one of them being like, oh, I am a director, I'm a full on director now, and I, I I say that even though I have directed in the past, like plenty of times i would usually identify myself as a cinematographer first and then a director and it wasn't until this past year where i was like i'm going to really take like a little bit of a leap of faith in that direction the director direction and um see where that goes. And, you know, I'm obviously really happy I did, but I wouldn't change anything about it either. I, I I feel like I jumped into this direction at the perfect time in my life. You know, I still consider myself a cinematographer. I still shoot things. I should, you know, I, I'm still, I'm still shooting music videos and shorts and, you know, features and whatnot. But this directing thing is very, um, very much a, a thing that I've been yearning for for a long time. And I don't think I could have done what I did with Kodama a year earlier. And yeah, it just kind of came together at the exact right time.
1: Because you also, you were the director and the cinematographer on Kodama,
0: right? Yes, which is not recommended. (laughs) Um, Would you do it again? Is that something? No, I actually... Knowing what I know now and how it panned out, like, again, I don't I don't think that I would change anything. I don't regret what I did, but I do recognize that I probably should have brought on a DP instead of shooting it myself.
1: But I know you, when you started Kodama, you felt very adamant about doing both. And I know you've talked about in the past how you'd be interested in doing both. And there are some big directors that do. So what changed?
0: What changed was the, the extent in which my brain was being split on set. <laughs> <laughs> like I was not able to focus a hundred percent of my attention on the task at hand when thinking like a DP, while I should be thinking about performance or thinking about performance when, you know, cinematography is suffering, but, you know, priorities will always form themselves correctly when you're on set, when the time is on the, you know, the when the pressure is on and the the clock is ticking and you'll always put story first, you'll always put performance first. And if the cinematography suffers, then that's totally fine. But if I wanted a really pristine looking movie, I probably should have went with a <laughs> another DP.
1: So let's also back up a little bit and touch on what you had mentioned about Kickstarter. I I think a lot of people are interested in using Kickstarter to fund their movies, and you did so very successfully, very quickly. Earlier when you mentioned that you didn't think that people would have the reception to the movie, I mean, it had a lot of attention and interest on Kickstarter even before you had shot a frame. So what was that process like?
0: Okay, so 2020 Brian had this perception, this unspoken connotation with Kickstarter That was pretty negative. I don't really, I I never really thought of myself as doing a Kickstarter. It just seemed like a little too out there for me. It it was just a lot of like putting yourself in front of a lot of people and like, you know, begging for money. And usually the people who are going to give you money are close friends and family. And that made me uncomfortable. But there's a lot of success stories where a Kickstarter rounds up a bunch of people strangers from around the world who can back a project and something that they believe in and it does what Kickstarter is meant to do and crowdfund. And I feel like I wasn't expecting that to happen either. <laughs> I just I, I don't I don't know. I, I think maybe I'm maybe I'm a little like cynical in that regard, but I just couldn't understand why someone would give me money. <laughs> Just based off of concept alone. So in preparation for that, because I knew I had to do a Kickstarter in order to fund this movie, I took it on myself to like really polish the Kickstarter video. I I saw a lot of Kickstarter videos. I watched a ton, very successful ones, but none of them were really like a super polished, almost like trailer for the movie. And I, I felt like I just... If, if I was, if I was going to ask the amount of money that I was demanding of people, then I should really show them what they're buying into. And because I had learned CGI or uh, Blender 3D over the pandemic, I created a bunch of CG shots for the trailer, the Kickstarter video, and it ended up being a pretty, you know, pretty cinematic based uh, Kickstarter video that I think, I think was a big contributor to people being interested beyond friends and family, because there was a good amount of people that I didn't know donated to it. And I, for the life of me, couldn't understand why.
1: (laughs) I mean, it seems like their investment paid off, right?
0: Yeah. I mean... They have yet to see it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Already getting a lot of interest from agencies, from the festival. So, okay, it sounds like you had your doubts about Kickstarter being successful. You had your doubts about South by Southwest and even the film festival system in general. But there was something that still motivated you to just make the project and submit to these things and go for it. What was that?
0: All right. Well, I think I should back up and say that as a cinematographer for many years I feel like there were just a fear I mean despite having shot so many things I feel like there were a very small number of projects where I felt like they they hit a tone that really resonated with me and my desire to shoot more films like that in a creative capacity was like really yearning for a project that could allow me to do that and during the pandemic, I started learning CG, and I, I I made this Instagram page called Doodle Brian, and I would challenge myself to make a new animation every day or a little like CG uh, artwork piece or whatever. Anyways, I would try to do that every single day, and I was trying to kind of like go freeform and. You know, it it would it would literally be anything. There was no rules, Uh, but there seemed to be like a really cathartic creative outlet there. And it wasn't necessarily because of CG. It was because I was answering to nobody other than myself as to what I wanted to make that day, and it allowed me to kind of hone in on what I actually want to make. Because maybe yes, cinematography I have a very deep connection with because I love interpreting a director's vision and elevating it and creating something in that collaboration I, I really like that and I feel like I can, can be I can be a chameleon in that in that space so I, I don't feel bound by like genre or tone or whatnot but as far as directing and personal projects go I feel like I really only see myself making things in a very specific tone and that tone I keep saying tone but the, the only reason I say that is because I, it's so hard to describe it for me personally I just don't know, if I have the vocabulary to other than to like make a movie and, and show people what I'm talking about. And I think those little animations that I did every day kind of scratched the surface of doing that or scratched the itch of trying to articulate that tone to people. But I felt like I needed a piece that wrapped it all into a nice bow, a nice story that, because cause the, the cathartic aspect of like a fully formed and told story was like a part of that tone, and I really needed that. And Kodama was kind of born out of, A, really wanting to advocate for some sort of thing that I wanted to make that that really nailed that tone. And then, B, I feel like Kodama was a, a showcase for telling a story in the way that I wanted to tell a story, not just from a cinematographer's standpoint.
1: And then... When you were looking for that project, what about the source material of Kodama stood out to you? Or how did
0: you select that? I It actually kind of started from a drawing that I was doing. I doodled on a piece of paper, kind of like a mash up of tradi- a traditional samurai armor mixed with uh, a SWAT uniform. And that kind of snowballed into a lot of different like questions that I had in my head, I was like, why would this exist? If this was a thing in the world, why would somebody have a costume like this? What does this costume say about the world? And that kind of kick started literally a full year of research, digging through the internet about the samurai and not just samurai, but yokai and Japanese folklore and all the different things that i you know it just it just snowballed into all these different avenues of interest and i kind of turned that into a rolodex of things that i wanted to put into the movie and yeah and then i just full year of just brainstorming how am i going to justify this world and how am i going to make how am i going to world build this to the point where it makes total sense from every direction and that it aesthetically aligns with the things that I wanna make, and that it tonally feels sound and how do I and the hardest part was obviously finding the characters who can embody these costumes and why they would be in these costumes and why this is dramatic at all, you know um, and how can I dig even deeper and find something that I think is Emotionally resonant that I can talk about in like the action in the context of an action film, because I think it's easy for me to say that I like making action films now. But prior to Kodama, I think I was still in a space of like, I don't know if action is exactly what I'm looking at. I think action is like a part of the film. But. I ultimately want to make something that feels very intimate and personal. And can I maintain that if I make this an action film? I'm hoping that that came across.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Okay, before we back up into earlier on your path, I do also want to talk about the casting process because I know you were able to tap your first choice for talent, which is not something that every director gets to do how did you reach out to the actors that you wanted to work with
0: honestly the way that this came together was all very i mean i'm i i was i i feel very new i was very new to it all and reaching out to the actors that i reached out to i think they were all my first choice but they were also people that i knew i knew i either i knew them personally or i knew somebody who knew them and it didn't feel so far-fetched to reach out to them and kind of ask them what they thought. Brandon Suhu, I knew from a film that Sean Wang had shot. And I also knew him from Wong Fu Productions, short films, and a variety of people who also knew him, who were mutual friends with him. So it wasn't, it, I felt like I had the connections to kind of reach out and and kind of um, get this in front of him and see what he thought and see if he was interested And luckily he was because he was fantastic. And um, I thought he was a perfect fit for it because he's not just a fantastic actor, but he's a great martial artist. So there is a great opportunity for him to do his own stunts and elevate the movie in that way. I knew Justin Chen personally. I actually shot a film for him several years ago uh, where he was the director. And we've been friends ever since. And it it, it all kind of culminated pretty simultaneously with him getting into a Netflix show and us shooting Kodama. So that was a really cool coincidence. And then Chris Toshima was somebody that I met through a director friend of mine. So yet another connection through another person.
1: And the people that served as the bridge in these cases were people that you met during your time at USC in the film school and then subsequent projects Meeting on set or...
0: Yeah, I, I met them a variety of ways, but it's mostly through USC. Justin had gone to USC, so I met him there. The person I met Chris through, he he also went through USC. Brandon, I know... Well, the the real connection I had that who introduced me to Brandon specifically was Cole. So I knew Cole through USC. Cole. Cole Bacani. Um, and I've shot a bunch of movies with Cole, so... And that was... That all started... At USC, so that was kind of, I guess I could point all things towards USC. But at the end of the day, it was like just a lot of tangents from that <laughs> that world that all uh, that still affect me to this day.
1: Definitely. So I actually do want to back up and talk about USC, but I know that your path in the film industry started even earlier than that when you were a teenager, uh, or maybe even a little bit younger. Let's go to the beginning of your path. Can you tell me how you first got started in film and who you were working with?
0: I usually think of this time period in my life, specifically like early high school, as the time where I started thinking about filmmaking, um started looking into stop motion, started getting my interest into moving pictures and holding a video camera and running around with friends and doing stupid things with a camera. And I kind of owe a lot of those early collaborations to well two people actually josh jackson and faith lou who are still really close friends of mine to this day and we still work on things together i just shot something for faith that she directed recently and josh had also done some vfx for kodama back in high school we were we were friends through church we met through church we we um we all shared oh in new Jersey. Marvel, New Jersey. We all shared an interest in telling stories. We were very, I don't know, I think we just had a a shorthand immediately when it came to creativity and wanting to develop things and kind of dig deep and like explore the little, like the details and the facets of what film could offer. And we were very, very stupid and naive and like (laughs) run and gun back then, but it was, it was fun. And I really, I, I do I do think often about um, this is probably like 2012. We just kind of like dove into it and like were relentless in trying to make stuff all the time.
1: What kind of stuff were you making? Um,
0: We just we made little parody videos that we posted on YouTube. We made like action videos and all of these were like loosely written. I think we had the spirit like at the time, like the YouTube landscape was like things like freddie wong and like corridor digital and like they're they're like quote-unquote cinematic like vfx like parody videos and we were kind of in that same vein at the same time not that we had any like viral success
1: well you did have one viral success with a movie based off a video game right
0: well it was like a trail it was like a two-minute trailer that was supposed to make it look like temple run was going to be a movie Okay, I guess I take that back. We did get a million views on that. And at the time, that was like groundbreaking for us.
1: For any creator, you know, many creators still strive to hit a million views on a video.
0: But yeah, no, I mean, that was a really good time uh, where I feel like we were just so creatively unhinged <laughs> you know like we didn't have any reason to think that this was a bad idea we had no reason to think that jumping on the back of a car and holding on to the edge of it with a camera on the other hand like it was a bad idea we had no reason to think sneaking onto a battleship and filming scenes inside of it was a bad idea we had no reason to think duct taping things to the side of moving vehicles. And I don't know. It was it was just a lot of do whatever it takes.
1: You're talking about things that are maybe safety related, but I'm sure you were also pretty uninhibited at that time about what other people thought, right? With right. Experimenting. No, that,
0: I think that's the biggest part of it, right? I feel like we had nobody to tell us that this was good or bad. It was just an unfiltered creative thought that we had. And between the three of us, me, Josh and faith, and, and there was a few other people like Matt Presvara and like Ryan Mullins. We had a bunch of people there who were just kind of contributing to this very creative community of sorts. In hindsight, I think that was just like such a blessing because I realize how rare that is at that early of an age, at that early of like anybody's creative endeavor. Into anything, you know, it doesn't have to be film, but like anything cr- uh, creative and anything collaborative. High schoolers <laughs> don't want to be collaborative; they want to like. I, I, don't know, I just, I just feel like the 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 filmmaking process is one of collab uh, collaboration, obviously, and it's probably the most collaborative art form. And the fact that we were able to pull off the things that we did at the time was. I just think was kind of a miracle because I don't know, it was just kind of a perfect storm of people to come together and puzzle piece their their personalities uh, together and work and make things and really feel proud of what they were making. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all felt really proud of the stuff that we were making. Yeah, it was just a good time. And I often joke with Josh that we're just trying to get back to that 2012 year because we felt so uninhibited at that time. But anyways, I went off to film school and that all changed.
1: <laughs> Before we get to that, I also just want to talk about the resources that you had at that time. Obviously, you guys are very resourceful. And back then, iPhones did not film 4K and even SLR is shooting video relatively new but you guys still made stuff what tools were you using i think you're editing on sony vegas back
0: then right yeah i mean i stood by sony vegas until like far (laughs) too late (laughs) i was chastised by the whole school um but anyways (laughs) i made uh a lot of those things on uh, a canon dslr I think at that time, and I also think it's a huge blessing that I got into filmmaking at the time that I did, because that was the same time that the DSLR, quote unquote, the DSLR revolution happened and video function was available on DSLRs and suddenly everyone was able to get shallow depth of field with interchangeable lenses and shoot at a decent resolution digitally. And that opened a lot of things up creatively for me. I actually went to a film camp. I want to say sophomore year of high school. It was called Interlochen. They had a motion picture arts. It was just for a few months. It was like two months in Michigan and we would make, it was like a miniature film school. It was, it was truly like an expedited 310 experience at film school or junior thesis film at film school. And it was kind of cool. We we shot on uh, EX ones or something like that, and I thought that was like a big deal at the time. And then I had a DSLR also, and I was like, oh. The point is, the resources that I had, I was very lucky to a have a supportive dad who was willing to purchase the <laughs> these things for me.
1: And you, you by things you're talking about, the DSLR cameras, the DSLR,
0: yeah, and you know, have the time to collaborate with These people that I keep talking about who happened to be all homeschooled. So they had time. (laughs) But I, you know, I had I was I was in public school, so I sacrificed my supposed public school time (laughs) to make movies because I was not a good student.
1: Um, (laughs) Wait, wait, when you say sacrifice public school time, are we talking about cutting class or what?
0: No, no, I didn't cut class, but I definitely did not. As far as study and homework, it was just like, I'm just I go back home and I make stuff with With your friends.
1: And I do want to touch on a medium that you started out in that you haven't gone back to in a while and is not as popularized anymore, but was pretty formative for you, if I remember correctly. And that's stop motion.
0: Now that you say that, because I haven't thought of it like in years (laughs) in that way. But the truth is, I think stop motion was that pre-CGI free blender, like uninhibited creativity um, tool that I was able to access at an early age. Because truthfully, if you, you know, obviously live action, you ha- you're you limited by the the resources you have. You're limited by the room that you're in or the environment that you're in. You're limited by the people that you can get in front of the camera. But like stop motion, if you got a Lego set, <laughs> you can have like a full on like Lord <laughs> of the Rings battle in your movie. And that that's just between you and the amount of time you're willing to spend (laughs) animating it. So I I truly thank stop motion for that because I think it allowed me to think bigger at that time and like feel like I, anything was possible. I would often opt to do class projects in the form of like a stop motion video What kind of class project? Like history projects, right? Like there's like, oh, do like a, do some sort of presentation on like this war or this battle. And I'd be like, you know what? I'll do that, but in stop motion. And I'd animate the whole battle.
1: (laughs) And would they accept that instead of you writing anything about it? Yeah,
0: no, they would. And I had a pretty sick uh, history teacher, Mr. Morgan.
1: Shout out to Mr. Morgan. Yeah. Speaking of great teachers, we can go on to the next leg at the University of Southern California. Uh, something we have in common is we both were rejected from the School of Cinematic Arts the first yeah. time, and it's been a journey. So can you tell me about the time applying, what that was like, the schools that you were considering, and how you ended up at USC?
0: Yes. So like you said, I got rejected from USC, and I was really close to going to Syracuse for a film, and... It got, I mean, it's crazy because I I think I I committed to Syracuse because that was the only school that I got into, I think. I applied to all the other film schools, all got rejected, and then... After having gone to, like I went to an orientation, some sort of like accepted student orientation at Syracuse and not to knock Syracuse, but like I went there (laughs) and they were like, oh, go off and find your respective uh, majors and there will be a representative there to kind of show you around. There was no representative for the film department. Like we couldn't find anybody. It was just like a vacant hall. When you say, <laughs> we, when
1: you say we, how many people were trying to track down this person? I mean, I
0: couldn't find, like, there was like one other person, like two other people. I don't remember. It was it's just me and my program. dad and like a few other people. And we're like, okay, there's no one, it's like a ghost town here. Like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I guess we're just going to go home and accept that this is like the next four years of my life. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then that was around the time I got the acceptance letter to my appeal for USC. So you appealed to USC. Uh, yes. Uh, and uh, the funny thing is, like, I got the off, like, they had this thing that they send in the mail where you like, oh, you can appeal your the decision. And I saw that. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that because that feels like pointless. Right. Like, I'm sure everyone does that. That's that seems like a, a slim chance or whatever. And my dad was the one who kind of inf- like pressed mm. it on me. I was like, dude, you, you what do you have to lose? So I did it. And thank goodness I did, because that was a. Uh, very, very truly life altering decision.
1: Mm, Did you send in a stop motion essay instead of a written essay? (laughs) uh,
0: It's funny because I feel like stop, I, I truly haven't thought about stop motion in so long in that way, because I feel like the last time I did stop motion was like, like that was my middle school. And then high school was like me trying to do live action stuff with friends. And, you know, obviously we made a bunch of videos and like, But the the problem with stop motion was like it's a very solitary thing. You don't do anything with collaborators. You can't you can't really collaborate with anybody uh, if you're just making little Lego stop motions in your your bedroom.
1: It's like frame by frame, just like the VFX.
0: Yeah. Now that I think about it, I have come full circle. (laughs) (laughs) I am sitting in a computer (laughs) animating things on my computer alone in my room.
1: (laughs) Okay, so now we're at your time at USC. You got in on appeal. Actually, a lot of our close friends and some of the most successful people, I think, that came out of USC in our year were admitted on appeal.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really cool to have that like huge group of people come in at the same time because we all kind of gravitated towards each other and we instantly formed uh, friendships. I met a lot of my closest friends on the very first day including you and a lot of collaborators I still work with today.
1: And when you say you became close to those people, it's because you were in the spring admit class, right? So it's the freshmen that start their USC experience in the spring. So you guys all had that experience in common.
0: Right. But it was also kind of a weird middle ground because we were in between like the the fall and the spring Mm -hmm. or whatever. So, oh, wait, whatever year it was above us and below us, we were just kind of in the middle. Yeah. And it was weird, but it was also kind of nice because we could technically kind of reach out to them and still feel like a part of their group and still reach out to the, the year under us and still feel like a part of theirs. But you
1: guys walked with class of 2016. Yeah.
0: Oh, I walked with 2016, but I graduated 2017. Mm. According to USC. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? To, To be honest, I wasn't even sure what year I graduated technically until like a little pamphlet came out when they were introducing The Last Whistle. I was like, oh, it says Brian Tang, colon, 2017. And I was like, oh, is when I graduated.
1: And The Last Whistle is, of course, the first feature that you shot after graduating USC. Okay, so you're at USC. You're in the formal education process. There's structured classes. You're assigned to certain projects. And then you graduate, and it's the Wild West of trying to figure out how to make a career. And obviously, you've gone on to do features and acclaimed shorts, and we'll get into all of that. But what was that like when you first graduated? How did you figure out how to take the next steps into adulthood?
0: I didn't. (laughs) I feel (laughs) like I was, it was a weird graduation for me because I still had an extra semester to do. So most of my friends who were directly peers of mine had already fully graduated and I was still doing, you know, another semester and not fully in the freelance world yet. I was still... You know, obviously DPing and uh, shooting projects here and there on the side. But until I was actually fully graduated, I didn't really join them yet. The, the first film that I remember shooting after graduating officially was Under Darkness with Caroline, a friend who's a directing friend of ours. And it's a World War II film. It got the Sloan grant, so it had a considerable amount of money, uh, mo- well, mo- more money than we were used to having <laughs> for any short film at the time.
1: Yeah, that's the Alfred P. Sloan grant, which is given to USC students that incorporate some scientific element into their film. So in Caroline's film, it was about Faye Shulman, who's a photographer in World War II, and the scientific element was her developing the photos. So that was a very prestigious grant for you guys to get at the time At the time, and a lot more money than you were used to having on a student budget.
0: Yeah. You're really good at describing this. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a great pitch for the film. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Uh, that was a good time. I feel like that was the first time we worked with Panavision, the Panavision grant, uh, or at least my first time working with the Panavision grant.
1: Oh, that was the Panavision grant as well.
0: Yeah, we got a Panavision grant. And the Sun grant, Alexa, okay. We had the... I don't know, we shot that on, like, I think Super Speeds or something.
1: Just to inform anyone who's listening who might not be familiar with these grants, the Panavision grant is camera specific.
0: Right. They give you a package that they, uh, that's available. It's usually an Alexa classic. It, it's it's basically what they can give you and what's available.
1: But in, in any case, light years above the SLRs that kids have yeah, access and to. I think
0: that period in my life as a cinematographer, who's somebody, somebody who wanted to be a cinematographer only, was like okay these are goals of mine these are hard achievable goals of mine i will sh- i will shoot a film with an alexa you know i will shoot a film with this kind of lens you know those are things that i kind of put on my to do list of sorts and after having done those things they didn't really mean anything <laughs> they they didn't really add to anything beyond saying Myself, that I did that. But what they did speak to, I think, is what people are more interested in is like what it says about the production. Like, oh, they were able to afford this kind of camera or they were able to afford this kind of lens. And that says subconsciously to the cinematographer that this is a higher budget production. So I think that's what people are subconsciously thinking about when they're like, oh, I got to shoot on a red, I got to shoot on an Alexa, especially at that stage in their career or my career, at least. Mm. I was just like, oh, I haven't gotten to shoot with an Alexa classic before. I, I think that'll be a milestone for me. So when I say that I was like, oh, I'm so excited to shoot on Alexa or work with Panavision with Under Darkness. I was like, this is exciting to me from a very kind of naive standpoint. (laughs) Uh, But it was a necessary goal to have to kind of understand what that meant in the long term. It's kind of like optics, you know?
1: That's true, but when given the chance now, you do pick Alexa. So at some yeah, point, you'd have yeah. to learn to it's use a, your a tool a skill, of choice. It's a skill,
0: it's a tool, and it becomes like, but I think the danger, I, I, I guess I'm saying that my mentality at the time was, oh, the camera kind of determines the value of mm-hmm. the cinematographer. And I was like, oh, I shouldn't do that. Like, that. that's not the way to look at it. Like, the. Uh, obviously, the storytelling... And the, uh, the visual storytelling capabilities of a cinematographer is really what people are valuing their skills off of and not, not the technical, um, or I mean like some of the technical, but a bigger, uh, proponent of it is like, can they tell a story visually?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I I think proving your point, actually some comments come to mind while we were at USC of people looking at things that we had worked on together and that you had shot and, A big thing that you knew how to use that was mind-boggling for our peers was the Steadicam. And I remember people asking me when they would see this footage that you'd shot on a Canon 60D. Oh my gosh, what'd he shoot on? Because they assumed, oh, if it looks really great, that must mean that there is a big
0: budget camera attached. Mm. Yeah, I had a Glidecam all throughout end of high school into college. It's a big part of the brand back then. Yeah, no, it was just me and my like... DSLR and a glide cam running around campus, following everybody, pointing a camera (laughs) into everyone's faces and not letting up. I became so synonymous with holding a camera in their face in everyone, all of my friends' faces that they kind of ignored the camera after a while. (laughs) They were just like, oh, it's Brian with his camera. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's just like, if I didn't have my camera, it would be concerning for people. (laughs) They're like, what happened?
1: Okay, so you graduate USC. You're figuring it out. Uh, We did touch on Under Darkness. For people that have not heard of Under Darkness um, before, that was the film that Brian mentioned by Caroline Friend. It not only won those two grants going into production, but it also was a finalist at the Student Academy Awards for the year that it qualified and got into Telluride, which is a very prestigious festival. But that wasn't the only film you had in either of those competitions. You also had the film Bolero, How did you get attached to that project, which also is in the finals at both of those competitions?
0: That was a grad thesis film um, by uh, Sarah Gross, and it was produced by Timmy Dieters. And Timmy, I knew from shooting a bunch of acting reels with. So that was kind of like a side gig or side hustle that we would do.
1: And you guys had met at USC, right?
0: Yeah, USC. um,
1: And then worked together on the acting reels.
0: Yeah. And so he was producing this film along with Lily Hardy. And uh, Annika Dawson. And this film was like a post-apocalyptic world with a lot of violence in it and stunts. And it was it was actually such a breath of fresh air for me because secretly inside, I really want to do that kind of stuff. And that was like a really cool opportunity to kind of dig my teeth into that genre.
1: When you say secretly inside, why was it a secret?
0: Okay, so. This is diving into the headspace of, uh, you know, like 20, what, 2015, 20,
1: 16, 17. It was around Brian. 2017, 2018. Yeah, it was 20. It
0: was at Telluride 2019. So it yeah, we definitely before. shot it 2017, I want to say. But anyways, like Brian from like fresh out of film school and definitely in film school was very impressionable and very influenced by the things that people seemed to like. You know, I, I think that. I was just really cognizant of what people responded to around me, and I felt like that, in turn, made me think like, oh, I have to make movies like this, or the things, you know. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of film schooly, tropey kind of films that people really like, and I like them too. But I I realized that my taste going into film school and coming out of film school kind of changed. Maybe not in the direction that was most inherent to me. At the time, if you asked me what kind of movies I wanted to make, it was very different than what I would say now.
1: What would you have said then? This is, this is almost cutting ahead to our time capsule <laughs> portion, but we, we'll, we'll do a spoiler. What I, kind of movies? I think,
0: okay, it's hard for me to describe because I do think there's still a part of me that makes movies like that or wants to make movies like that. But they were very, very indie. They were very, very like thought pieces and like vibes, <laughs> you know? The short answer is I saw a lot of my friends' work and the success they had. And I wanted to make those movies because I saw their work and the success that they had. And I tucked away the, the, the interests of Brian <laughs> or like childhood Brian for the kind of things that I saw people responding to.
1: So when you say you had different tastes coming into film school and going out, were the were the ones that you were entering film school with truer to what your tastes are now? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So you I think I kind of came
0: back to what I I really liked when you know like when I said 2012 was like the unhinged, undiluted form of creativity. <laughs> I think that again is just like a, a period in my life where I'm trying to kind of rediscover and articulate and advocate for those those instincts. So,
1: yeah. (laughs) So that was Bolero. One film I wanted to also touch on before we get into your first feature is many moons. And the reason I want to touch on this is because it was such an insane idea that you had at the time. And I know so many years have passed since it was shot in 2017 and you've worked on so many things. It's easy for this to kind of get lost in the shuffle, but it really was quite an original idea And something that people still talk to me about this day, having been involved on the project. So can you tell me how, what was the spark of inspiration on deciding to shoot a film during a total solar eclipse?
0: I mean, the spark was the total solar eclipse, uh, obviously. But when I saw that that was happening and it seemed so accessible for us to find a place in the United States that would be covered by the shadow of the moon, I was like, okay, we got to do something, right? Like I think my go-to every time I saw something unique or or interesting or especially with me, like somebody who's like constantly holding a camera and trying to capture moments between like friends and like acquaintances and like just like, I, I, I just really had this deep desire to capture moments that couldn't be caught again. And that happened that 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 goes that rung true for like moments between friends or moments between close people. And then, you know, in this case, it was like this is like a celestial event that like we won't see again in our lifetime. So I was like, we got to capture it somehow. I'm definitely going to film it. But why not make a movie out of it? And why not try to form some sort of story that kind of uses it as like a focal point? It took a while to come up with a a story to hinge this solar eclipse on, but I had the help of Faith Lou, who uh, I had previously mentioned, obviously, who's one of my collaborators in New Jersey. And uh, between the both of us, we wrote a script that I think allowed us to or at least my intention behind the film was to have a scene play out under the shadow of the moon start fully daytime go devolve into night and then like come out daytime again all as a oneer and really drive home both on like a like a cinematic and thematic standpoint that this all was shot continuously unbroken and like in camera
1: and over a short period of time for anyone listening who wasn't around for the total Solar eclipse. I mean, I think I think it was maybe seven minutes, right? Oh no, it was two minutes. Two minutes, right? Yeah. So it was only two minutes that the sun was completely covered by the moon. Three hundred sixty degree sunset, and then. With practical lighting, with natural light, it, the light would come back. I just want to make it clear to anyone who yeah. isn't familiar.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So, basically, the, the, logistical, the logistical challenge of that movie was obviously crazy. We had to go to Oregon. We had to find a spot that we could stay at and also film at that also was in the shadow of the moon when it passed overhead.
1: But far enough away from all the festivals happening and things right. making
0: all the extra noise. Yeah. And, um you know, have the control that we needed to have the scene play out without a hitch Um and find actors who are willing to go on this crazy journey with us and also actors who were experienced enough to not buckle under the pressure of this one take wonder kind of thing. And I, I, I feel like that that film still has like a special place in my heart because it it, it truly is the one time you can say in a movie scenario that there was no, no take two. And an audience knows that there was no take two. Even with a wonder for like a narrative film, you're like, oh, this is so impressive that they did this all in one take. But you subconsciously are thinking like, how many takes did they do? This film, you know that they only did it once. <laughs> And I think that's really cool. And if there was a world where I could do the same thing in the future, like with a bigger budget and like a, a you know, a more expansive story to kind of hinge on that, that, I would be so down to do another. Would you want to revisit Yeah, I would, I would revisit the concept of shooting a narrative thing under the eclipse with that intention. But I think that when I look back on many moons, I, 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 I recognize I'm super proud of it. I am very proud of it. I think it's really kind of impressive that we were able to pull all of those things off. But I also recognized a lot of things that I learned from it. Mostly from a story perspective, I feel like the biggest thing that I learned was ambiguity is not suspense. A lot of, I feel like a big thing that I realized about the movie after having cut it together and finished it and watched it like a bunch of times with a a few other people was like the guy for the first, like majority of the movie, you don't really know what he's doing (laughs) and he's like on a mission, but you don't know what that mission is. And I feel like an audience is not going to be, you can only hold an audience in like ambiguity for like a very short amount of time. So ever since then, I kind of found myself in a place where I'm like, it's okay to over communicate what, what's to come to an audience because they want to be in on the, the, the joke, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, Suspense comes from like the audience knowing something the characters don't. And I think that was like the flip that I realized I didn't have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But anyways, that's a that's a tangent.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you're touching on those lessons that you learned from directing and which projects because I think often it's tempting to think you can learn all about directing just from watching other people's work or just from reading about it or listening to people speak about it. But yeah, there's there's something kind of irreplaceable about doing it yourself and having the idea and learning learning from it but i also just want to touch on the actors really quickly because the through line of a lot of these stories that you're telling are that it was the strength of the connections before because i know originally you had envisioned this piece with more mature actors later in life and yeah. uh, the script was rewritten to accommodate younger actors who would basically be down to go on a, a two day yeah. road trip and spend a day rehearsing in prineville oregon on a ranch and that was jared Ryder and sarah molinar uh,
0: yeah great actors. They they were phenomenal and they were so down and they're friends of mine. So I, I I had a lot of faith that they would be able to pull it off and they were great to be around. So I was just like, it was an easy choice, but it wasn't easy when I had the initial idea of like wanting to make the film about, um, you know, obviously people who are in their own, like just older actors in general and it's, it's harder especially for like a no budget kind of thing Like at the time I, I had no money I didn't really have any way of like making a ton of money to kind of build up the budget for this film I didn't even know what kind of budget this demanded as far as like visual effects goes I only knew what Josh was able to do Josh Jackson who is you know he does a lot of compositing and you know even then I was like kind of in the dark So I feel like at the time, the, the resources that I had and the, the, the time that we had and like the, the knowledge that I had kind of bottlenecked the potential for what that film could have been. And, and I think that I I say that also because I, the whole conceit of the film was very, again, kind of resource driven is like, this is an event that's happening we need to make a movie because this event's happening. It's not like it, it, the it, the inception of the idea wasn't like, "Oh, I have a story I really want to tell. Let's find out the best way to tell that story. Let's put a solar eclipse in it." That seems like the best way to tell the story. I think the 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 working like the backwards engineering of trying to figure out a story to surround it around this like event was part of the reason why it was like so resource driven.
1: Well, I mean, it's a creative challenge, right? The, yeah, the premise was a of the film is, is that a man is that his wife passed away, and she only reappears to him during the solar eclipse when the moon is in the path of totality. But I, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that because you had met Jared on a oh yeah set from Caroline Friend and a different World War yeah no a different world both a different war and a different film um, yeah. directed by Caroline Caroline uh, and
0: her her war movies her period pieces correct. Um, but I mean, again, this is this is also something I was super lucky having come out of school with knowing a few directors who frequently came back to me as a cinematographer. And I mean, if you're a cinematographer, like the only thing you really need to do to ensure work is just like be friends with directors (laughs) and have repeat collaborators who are directors. And that like, that's, then you're set. Um, And I felt very lucky to have found like a a number of directors who would continually come back to me. And even luckier is that they were all directors who were working in the narrative space. I know a lot of cinematographers who work in like the commercial space and the music video space, and they really want to do narrative, but they don't know anybody or they don't have repeat collaborators in the narrative space, so they can't break into it. And it's not because they can't, they, they are obviously very, very talented and they have all the chops to do it. It's just that relationship isn't there yet, uh, between them and like a narrative based director. So that's kind of where I feel like really lucky. And that's also kind of why I felt so confident with narrative blocking just a lot. I mean, I feel like I've, I've worked with just a number of directors, uh, watching their directing styles and. You know different uh, ways about you know talking to actors and figuring out the 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 blocking of a scene to kind of form an opinion about those things over time, and it's truly a luxury to have that kind of experience with so many directors, um, even if there are things that you don't like from those directors. Uh, or you don't think that you would do. It's like, now you, now you know that. (laughs) Um, So I just thought that was a really good time to like learn from everyone.
1: So then one of the next projects was your first feature film. And I remember how excited you were to see this film advertised on the Fandango app and people could buy (laughs) a ticket and see it in the theater. Yeah, it's a major milestone. And that was uh, the last whistle can you kind of revisit how that experience came about?
0: Uh yeah, The Last Whistle was um a feature. It was a football movie written and directed by Rob Smat. Uh again, another friend of mine from USC. He made a post about the feature that he was uh embarking on. And I literally just messaged him like, dude, are you are you looking for a DP? Because I'd be super down. And he was like, Yeah, man, I was gonna ask you. But yeah, no, that that was that was kind of how that happened.
1: <laughs> and did you have any second thoughts about that? Because I know I feel like I think it's sometimes hard for people to just reach out and ask. You know, the opportunity's right there. Did you have any hesitations I, about okay, reaching out? So
0: I feel like I only knew that it was safe for me to ask because I had worked with him before and it felt kind of like within reason for him to kind of consider me. So that was, you know, I felt, I felt okay about that. Mm. I do, I do recognize the fear of like reaching out to a rando and going like, Hey, can you shoot your movie? And it's like, okay, well, I don't know you. I don't know if you're like a dick on set, (laughs) you know, like there's a lot of things to figure out before that happens. And I understand that fear, but, um, I don't know. This situation was like really chill. And that film was shot very fast. I think we shot it over like 12 days in Fort Worth, Texas. The irony is like the budget was obviously quite, it was very, very, very tight. And okay. It's funny now that I think about it, but the budget is probably the same budget as my my short film. (laughs)
1: But I mean, you know, but to be fair, it's years later. I mean, I, yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. getting anything made, even on the low budget end in 2023, is vastly, and I mean vastly more expensive than even 2016. Right. But yes, I,
0: I, I, when I like to drive home the point of how low budget this is, I did not have a gaffer, I didn't really technically have a first AC. I was shooting the whole thing myself and, you know, I was pulling focus myself. I was lighting it myself and there was like local hires from, from schools in, in Fort Worth that they brought on to kind of act as crew. But none of them really knew how to like open a C-stand. Uh, so I had to like on the third day, I was like, OK, guys, this is ridiculous. We need to go into the garage. We're going to figure out how to, I'm going to teach you guys how to open a C-stand. This is how you, not, you know you don't hurt yourself. <laughs> this is how you set up a data dolly. This is how you do this. It was great, though. It was like it was like such a good experience. And it was great. Is that Rob is like a kind of a director who who really rolls with the punches. I think that combination with me being kind of light on my feet with where the camera was going and where the lights were going and him being pretty. It almost felt like we were shooting a doc, but not in the style of a doc. Mm. And I'm actually really proud of how that movie looks. I feel like it doesn't look like a one-man band type of Not movie. Not at all.
1: I don't even think I knew that until you said it just now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like there's a whole like football like action sequence at the in the beginning. There's a whole like there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts in that movie and I'm still like to this day shocked that we were able to pull it off in the way that we did. Yeah, it was all shot in such a quick amount of time. I think we shot it on a C300 Mark II we wrapped early almost every day.
1: <laughs> which is incredible. Who was who the AD on that project?
0: Uh... Uh, 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 Ryan, I think.
1: Oh, was it Ryan Taylor? Yeah, I
0: think it was Ryan Taylor. Mike Downing was producing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was again, like the beginnings of a, a really fruitful relationship uh, as far as work and collaborators go and good times, good times. It, it's funny because that film was so low budget that the timing in which we all got out there to shoot it and like prep I I hadn't seen any of the locations I I didn't see I I had no like location scout it was literally like we walk into a room the day of and it was like where are we putting the people and how are we blocking it Rob will be like there and there and I'll be like oh can we put it there and there and he's like oh cool and then there's like do this this and he's like put the camera here it's like boom we're done <laughs> you know shot everything I mean it works because that whole movie is just like everybody's talking <laughs> everybody's just sitting and talking there isn't a whole lot of like crazy dynamic I, I, other except than for a whole
1: football action sequence other, other yeah. than
0: that yeah where they had like <laughs> like over 100 extras yeah other than that sequence i think it all panned out pretty well and somehow that ended up on netflix
1: yeah it did on netflix yeah Your first feature and your first feature on Netflix, which was just a prelude to your second feature, also with a whole cast of characters from USC, uh, Bolt from the Blue, which I know is still in post and you're doing a little bit of VFX on, but you shot. I want to visit that project for a minute because I know that was your first time in Alaska.
0: Yeah, that was my first time in Alaska. And your
1: first time in a plane, which... Not your first time in a plane, but your first time in a plane of that size, which has inspired you to get a pilot's license now.
0: Well, I haven't gotten the pilot's license yet, but (laughs) I'm still thinking about it. It's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. I just, it's a, it it was a fun project. It was a sci-fi adventure film, and it was emphasis on adventure because we were definitely out there in the elements, making like (laughs) having having a very very Alaskan adventure time.
1: <laughs> Some nature challenges.
0: Yeah. I mean, that movie was challenging for a lot of reasons, not just the budget, but also like elements. And the, the story revolves around weather. It's like it has to do with like a storm. And so like getting lucky with the, the weather was like a very important thing. Mm. And schedule wise, the plan was to have all the weather dependent scenes shot as close to the beginning of the schedule as possible so just in case it didn't work out we could bump it back and you know have a second chance at that scene Mm. later down in the schedule but man we got really lucky with the weather yeah (laughs) except for one day because there was a there was a scene where there's a weather there's like a, a giant storm that's supposed to loom overhead and it was it was you know perfect blue sky <laughs> there was not a oh. cloud in the sky it was like it was like snowing and cloudy like the entire week, and that one day it was like pristine and uh we ended up having to like empty the entire grip truck and like create a giant like floppy like solid wall just mm. to keep everybody in the shade, make it look like it was overcast, and you know any any amount of like movement that the actor had to do, we had to cover that up and make it it was it was it was an ordeal but it worked out
1: i definitely thought you were going to go the opposite direction and it was supposed to be a day where there was any visibility and it was a complete you know no, blizzard, we, were, so.
0: we were praying for for stormy weather that was like <laughs> the part uh, the counterintuitive part of it all
1: mike's thinking yeah no we weren't <laughs> mike, it's mike downing who also produced bolt from the blue so mike's produced both the features that brian has shot today okay so a lot of collaborators from usc you still work with or have worked with along the post grad journey. What things would you say you learned in film school versus outside of film school? Especially for anyone listening who's considering whether or not to go to film school or you know other paths that are alternatives.
0: Okay, so I think the most important thing about going into film school is the expectation that you're not going there for gear, you're not going there for like equipment, you're not going there for bragging rights or anything like that. You're going there to connect with other filmmakers Mm -hmm. collaborators that you will you will work with with the rest for the rest of your life so it's that means two things i think it means that you you focus on relationships if you do go to film school and two you recognize that being you know kind and considerate of everybody is like (laughs) of you know your best interest it's just like it's very important and i think it's very it it goes without saying i think but like at the end of the day the movies you make in film school don't matter it's how you go about making those movies that matters Mm. and that's that will resonate throughout your career, more than whatever the heck you made in film school.
1: That's very well put. And i never really thought of it that way. Because I remember people saying while we were in film school that what we were working on doesn't matter. And you can't tell a 19-year-old who thinks they're making a yeah. magnum opus that it doesn't right. matter, you know?
0: Right. But you can be everyone's favorite collaborator. And that mm. will literally do wonders for you.
1: So what does that look like, being the favorite collaborator?
0: I, I mean, I think it's... I think it just means that you're considerate of everybody's time and their efforts and, and you are empathetic in that you can see why somebody wants to do it a certain way and you're adaptable and you can roll with the punches and not let situations get the best of your emotions or anything like that. I mean, I think that's the point and recognizing that, you know, you guys have ambition And it's important that you have ambition, you go get and you you strive for like the best possible outcome. But you also recognize that you will not do that at the cost of burning a bridge. Mm. So,
1: yeah, well put. I think that was actually one of our graduation speakers, Paul Feig. We're going to say he was also your graduation speaker, even though he was 2016. (laughs) Sure. That was his thesis of his whole speech was don't be an a-hole, but very true. So you've touched on the interpersonal skills that you can learn at film school and how you basically start establishing your reputation, and your career early in film school. Is there anything practical or on the technical side that you wish would have been more present in film school in the educational
0: portion? Um, It all depends on what your goals are and what you want to make or how you want to make, like if you want to be a director or if you want to be a cinematographer, I mean, obviously they all kind of have a different path, but as far as directing goes, I can't like emphasize how much VFX or having a good understanding of VFX has given me uh, in actualizing some of the ideas that I want to do. And obviously this doesn't apply to everybody. I think if you're, if you want to make like, like a marriage story type movies, like that doesn't have to apply to you, but it could, because what if you want to make a very small indie drama and there's like a giant, you know, like garbage truck, it's like camped out side on in the, in the window that you're shooting at. And you're like, oh, we can't shoot this scene. And then suddenly like, you you know, compositing and you're like, oh, okay, we can shoot the scene because we can like, just paint that out. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, suddenly it gives you freedom to kind of. I don't know not be so precious about certain things that shouldn't matter when you realize all the options you have and i i don't think that everyone needs to be super technically minded in order to do that i just think it's important that you understand what's possible because for example from a cinematography standpoint When I first learned about like this tool or this stand or this light, I suddenly was like, "Oh, I should have been using this this whole time." Why did I make it so hard on myself when I didn't know that this existed? And so, just educating yourself on like all the capabilities of what VFX has to offer, the storytelling experience is really important, in my opinion. Yeah, because like a lot of people think like, "Oh, you you know, you're a director who knows VFX. You must make a lot of sci-fi stuff. You must make a lot like, you know." robots and like monsters and
1: you mean they don't get SWAT samurai yeah right out the gate? <laughs> he's
0: like what <laughs> what visual effect <laughs> uh, <laughs> no i think uh, visual effects can apply to like this the most grounded indie drama it can benefit you and give you a lot of freedom in the way that you make your movies because again i think the goal is as far as directing goes is like you have a vision right you have a vision for what your movie is ideally but how you get to that vision is, that's the biggest question mark. And if you're very resource dependent, you're you're going to be compromising your vision all the time because it's like, oh, you know, my vision was this, but we only have this kind of location or we only have this amount of time to shoot it or the sun's going down we only have this amount of time before it's dark, something like that. But, you know, from a animation standpoint or CG standpoint or visual effects standpoint, you, you start from nothing. You start from ground zero and then you build and build and build until you get to your vision. So it's not a compromise. It's like literally like, I think it gives you freedom to like build to your vision instead of like be a slave to the resources around you.
1: So do you think that it's imperative that everyone learns VFX so they can implement it in their own movies like you did? Because... I think even if someone was aware, if they didn't have a cost effective way to carry it out, it would become a let's fix it in post kind of mantra like, oh, you know, we can remove this giant. Yeah,
0: you're right. I've struggled to figure out the right way of putting this, but I often think that it is beneficial for everyone to kind of get really if you're direct, if you want to be a director, I could I could redact this in like a few months or like a, an hour or a few minutes. So a
1: current take, hot, a, current,
0: hot, hot a very the... very current take. I feel like if you want to be a director at this current point in time, it is extremely beneficial for you to have a secondary skill, a hard skill that is that you not just get okay at, but you get really, you feel very confident that you can you can speak to on like a very in depth level. For me, that was cinematography and then more recently visual effects. But I think everyone's in on like a filmmaking standpoint, it could be different, right? You know, some people could be like sound design or music or or any anything like concept art or whatever. And I think once you have that, you kind of have like a superpower in one area of the filmmaking process that gives you a leg up over somebody who doesn't. And even when your vision is like really far fetched or it doesn't allow for like you to make that movie right now, you still have something to lean on to maybe just on like a jobs perspective. Like it's like this is this is what you do between the because like cinema, like, I think. A director will probably work on a movie uh, like the longest, right? Comparatively, a cinematographer is on a job and he's off a job like constantly.
1: Or an actor, anyone in physical production,
0: yeah. yeah. So I think all those like other jobs, all the other areas of expertise are where like you make your consistency and where you hone your craft in various areas of the filmmaking process and also where you kind of get, you know, train your internal AI as, as, as to like what how movies are made and that all helps you inform the way that you approach directing.
1: So a below the line skill, basically.
0: Yeah. I, I, I just, I just feel like it gives you a lot. I mean, editing. Oh my gosh. If you know how to edit and you're a director, Yeah. like that gives you such an advantage as to like how to shoot things quickly mm-hmm. and know that you got it. I would argue that's more important than cinematography.
1: I think it was Joseph Kahn who, said that directing specifically benefits from set experience because it's a process where crew management impacts the form. Mm,
0: so a little yeah. bit of
1: what you're talking about with the below the line skill. I also am curious what you think, because when we first graduated, there was definitely a school of thought that I don't want to get pigeonholed into this thing that is not directing because directing is my dream. So I'm going to take a job outside of the industry, sometimes something really flexible yeah. like driving for rideshare or delivery or, you know, another job totally outside of the industry so that no one in the industry ever sees me as anything but a director. What do you think about that
0: path compared I, to? I don't agree with that. I think the, the fear is valid, though. I think that people's perceptions of other collaborators are very rigid. They kind of see you as like one thing only. And they like to categorize people based off what they do. And I, I say that because I do that, you know, like I see somebody who's like a DP and I only see them as a DP. And then I find out that they like also edit. And I was like, Oh, what, (laughs) you know, are you also direct? Oh, what? (laughs) So I think that's really, uh, it's true. It's, it's true to be fearful of that, but I think it's important that any progress is still progress and taking like a tangent because you're worried about how other people perceive you or making any decision based off how other people perceive you is usually bad.
1: (laughs) But okay. I think what, what you just said is I think how the main fear, a lot of people live in, I mean, I think everyone does at times. So how do you overcome that? Was there.
0: Um, Okay. So I think, I think it was also a fear of mine and I can only say this now because it's like, worked positively in my case, but I recognize that I I can't, I, I'm only speaking to my own experience. I was a cinematographer for like, what, six, seven years. And just doing that professionally with like, I mean, maybe six years. Well, I mean, I'd I say know.
1: longer because you were taking paid
0: gigs during school. Uh, sure. And so I think that a big majority of that I had no intention of like veering off that path. And so I was very okay with people just seeing me as a cinematographer. And right now I feel like I'm in kind of like a weird space where I have broken that very long streak of having people think of me just as a cinematographer. And it was not that hard (laughs) to change people's minds. What did you do? Well just you just do it. You just make the thing, right? And and you do it now with armed with the experience you have as a as a cinematographer or whatever, a VFX artist or whatever. And I think that's ultimately way more beneficial than worrying about how people see you regardless of what the work is. Mm-hmm. Like the work should do most of the talking and how people perceive you, the branding that you have around you, like the the kind of whatever you you dress yourself up as, I don't personally think that matters as much. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, solid advice. But yeah.
0: I will say, if we want to get like very specific about it, say like directing or DPing, I but I think even more so directing. Again, I I feel very lucky to be in the position that I'm in right now. But like, I'll speak I'll speak to this on like a cinematography standpoint, right? Like music videos will get you more music videos commercials will get you more commercials a music video isn't going to get you like a narrative piece <laughs> i think and, and you know in the same way like a narrative piece doesn't usually give you a music video so but how do you get those how do you jump those like those thresholds and i think those are circumstances where you just need to invent your own opportunities and if those It's, it's just a bigger leap if you're like ride sharing or like doing a job completely out of the industry and suddenly going like, I want to jump into like narrative versus like somebody who's been working in music videos for a long time and jumping into narrative. It's just like a smaller leap. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not doing exactly what you want to be doing, I think it's adding to the ease in which you can do what you want to be doing. All, that was just a really, really long roundabout way of saying, uh, I don't think you have to worry about being pigeonholed in a certain space. You'd be surprised how, people, how quickly people are willing to adapt to your new identity of whatever you are or whatever you're telling people you are.
1: Well, you also had Impossible Objects um, presenting you as a director at this transition as well. Right. Let's talk about that transition, too, because basically the pandemic hit and while the rest of us were, you know, crying into our coffee at home (laughs) alone, you said... How can I give myself the most valuable skill that will impact the rest of my career and probably life that I can do at home in my computer?
0: So it's really funny because I feel like I truly and I genuinely did not think of it that way. <laughs> I was just like, you know what would be really fun to do? I'm just gonna, you know, see what this program's all about. And I had no intention of seeing if that was going to, I I think the most I thought about it was like, oh, this would be great if I wanted to like paint out a sign that was in my shot that I was in a project that I was DPing. Because, you know, we've run into issues where we're like, okay, the PD is great on this street or whatever, like the location's great. And then there's just like sore thumb in the middle of it where like, oh, what the heck is that? Mm. (laughs) You know, I was like, okay, I can, I can probably find a way to learn how to do that and stuff. But I ended up kind of going on a deep dive and I got really lucky because timing wise, I think that was around the time where a lot of blender 3d, um, tutorials were being posted online on YouTube. And it was just a big influx of interest when it came to the 3d community uh, specifically Blender. And uh, there's like Blender Guru, like a YouTube channel. He does a lot of tutorials that are really uh, digestible. There's Ian Hubert, who does a lot of tutorials and they're extremely um, informative and great for people who want to do things that are a little scrappier. And like, uh, there, there's just so many different ways of going about learning 3D. And I just got lucky and found the people who are making uh, tutorial content that was like very in line with the stuff that I wanted to make, and after having done a lot of those Doodle Brian posts, a friend of mine Joe Sill was uh, saw some of it, and he was starting a company at the time. It was called Impossible Objects, and uh, you know he talked to me about like wanting to join them and make some stuff together, and uh, specifically commercials. And his vision for Impossible Objects is really like a one-stop shop for all things virtual production in the commercial space. And so,
1: so you're on their director roster at Impossible Objects.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, they they they've turned into a full blown production company, mixed reality kind of production company with a bunch of directors that they frequently work with. And uh, yeah, I'm one of those people. And they're doing some really cool stuff on like volume stuff, like volume stage work, and uh, a lot of Unreal Engine based stuff. Mm. Which is ironic because I I work in Blender mainly, but I think Unreal is. Unreal and Blender work hand-in-hand in, hand in the sense that Blender is a place where you build assets, and Unreal is the place where you render and like place assets. And so they do a lot of each other's work. Mm. And creatively, I feel like Joe has a really good handle on what he wants, the aesthetic and tone and like the kind of projects that he wants to associate with for Impossible Objects and i think creatively we're all very aligned with that this is not to say that i i exclusively do like virtual production stuff cuz i don't but i think that was like a really cool space to be a part of especially watching joe and jared anderson and the rest of the team there kind of navigate the commercial space that was really cool. I, I, I learned a lot from them and I continue to, <laughs> to this day, I feel like there's so much that they do there.
1: And a lot of that work that you're doing in the VFX space is at your home, at a home station, which means you also have to have a living situation that's conducive to that environment. Yeah. How would you say your living situation and people that you've lived with have impacted your creativity over the years?
0: I feel like it's a huge part of my creative development I've been living with a few roommates for a number of years and we we found ourselves in a really good uh situation where I lived with a lot of uh, with uh other like f- frequent collaborators uh on the film space and I feel like by living with them it was just a constant conversation about what we wanted to make and the things that we were interested in and the things that we digested together on whether it be movies or tv or whatever like video games it was just like a, a constant like space of growing in our creativity and it it honestly felt like an extension of college but mm. free from the the judgment of oh is this you know good or bad it didn't matter and it it was nice because i think we all kind of found ourselves experimenting the whole way through i know josh was finding his his voice where you know, he he tried a bunch of different things and until he found Tubby Nugget. And you know, look where that brought him. So
1: for anyone listening who's not familiar, Josh Jackson with Jean Pastores founded Tubby Nugget, which is a cartoon character that's evolved into animations and a plush line of toys. But I think for a while, your garage was full of stuffed plush toys of Tubby Nugget. So always a creative environment for you, definitely,
0: yeah, yeah, it was really great. and I loved I loved having these conversations constantly and it was it was nonstop it was like 6 years of this <laughs> and when i say that it was like a chaotic environment i i really do mean it like we 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 were chaos <laughs> and i i think it was it was great because it was a time of not caring about being wrong all the time like we we could go in different directions and no one would judge us for it because no one was no one cared enough to like judge us for it and obviously when we found our footing and what we were ultimately trying to do we had the assurance through a lot of failure in other areas that this was truly what we wanted to do
1: if there was a brian tang now who was in high school what would your advice be to him if he wanted to emulate the career path that you've taken And we can do high school and then we can also do college or kind of early 20s.
0: Okay, there's there's a contradiction in the ways of the new and the ways of the old. And what I mean by that is some people really want to like dive deep into the ways of the old and like understand how things were made traditionally. And that's very valid. And there's people who want to like be on the cutting edge of the new technology and the newest trends and what's like hot right now. And that's valid too, but I think that there's a, there's a middle ground somewhere where I think that learning both what has been done and what's brand new is like super important. And I feel like that's something that I'm striving for in, you know, obviously like learning visual effects, but also trying to shoot things as practically as possible. You know, like for right now, we're, we're kind of on the brink of like this AI revolution. And it. I think it's important that we stay on top of it and understand what that means for our workflows in the future and how that impacts the way that we create as artists. But it's also important that we Understand how things used to be created so we can inform the way that we use the new technology. That's the reason why some of the most successful movies are successful. When you combine the old and the new, you create something kind of unique. Like, I think it's important for somebody who's fresh in like just starting their filmmaking, like discoveries and career or not career, like like their their interest in film, to watch movies and see where things came from before. Like, no, don't just watch movies that were made like last year. See what influenced those movies and how movies got to that point. You know, obviously keep up to date with the movies that are happening right now and see why things are popular in this day and age. I don't know. I, maybe that's not good advice for somebody who's just starting their their interest in film. I think that's more so for like somebody who's like already kind of decided, like, I want to make movies.
1: I mean, I actually think what you said was good and is applicable because it's also very cost effective. If someone's in high school, you know, it's a lot. Right. It's very accessible to watch a lot of movies nowadays. Even if you have a subscription to one streaming service, you can watch a lot of different movies and learn what you like, what you don't like and why.
0: You know what? Okay. I'll stand by the answer, but I also add this to it where it's like, I think it's really good to have the mentality when you watch movies that there's no such thing as a bad movie. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because there's always something to appreciate about a movie, even if it's not quote unquote highly rated. You can still appreciate the cinematography of a, a like a poorly written movie, or you can still appreciate the writing of a poorly shot movie, or you can still appreciate the music of something that doesn't like, you know, everything else kind of fell apart, you know? I think finding ways to dissect the different components of what goes into a film is super important because then you can kind of speak to those elements separately and appreciate them uh at face value. And the more movies you watch, the more you'll be able to kind of form your own taste and recognize what you like and the different elements of different movies that you like and that's when you start to develop your own voice because you're not just pulling from oh i only like this director you, you, you there's some people that i feel like you see in film school where like they made a that sh- they're like their film is identical to like oh you can see what who their favorite director is and it's like okay if you're only watching this person's kinds of movies, then you're only going to make those kinds of movies. But if you can like understand the craft well enough to dissect what, what went into making each of the components of a movie and like see where they came from in all these different various perspectives, then you can kind of form something really unique on your own, even without making a movie. I think taste is really hard to, to form. I, I think that's something that people don't teach you. You can't learn that in film school, or at least if you did learn it in film school, then it might be biased. <laughs> I, I'm, tr- I'm like, at least that was my experience. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you feel like you can kind of pick apart the the elements that are the ingredients of a movie and see how like these ingredients could go with this ingredients and that could go good with this kind of ingredient, like you can find your own recipe for a movie that you would want to make. But you have to see what those ingredients are first, and I think that has to do a lot with taste and forming your own taste. You know, my experience was very unique. I had like a lot of colla- like a lot of friends and collaborators early on in high school to kind of indulge in those like creative curiosities. And not everyone has that luxury, and I, I understand that like it, you know like that's huge like i feel like if you found people like that 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 would expedite the process <laughs> cuz then you're you're being forced through the experience of making a movie to pull apart the different elements of making it, like what goes into a movie but by watching a movie and trying really hard if you don't have access to like making your own movie or like collaborating with people and like doing that firsthand then getting really good at like picking apart what different ingredients that went into a movie is like pretty important.
1: Can you tell me about any moments when you considered leaving the industry or wondering if this was even right for you and what motivated you to keep going? Or have you just always had a no failure possible mentality?
0: Oh, yeah. No, that's not true at all. I (laughs) I don't know. I, I definitely felt like there was a number of times where I was feeling really, yeah, just really dejected and not really sure where my career was going. Um, it was obviously particularly difficult right out of film school. You know, they, they usually tell you like, say yes to everything so that you can gain the experience and gain the uh, the network and gain the exposure that you need in order to jumpstart your career. And so saying yes to everything means saying yes to everything that doesn't pay you (laughs) or doesn't pay you a lot. And making money at fresh out of film school is difficult and it takes a lot of luck. It takes a lot of perseverance and it takes a lot of long, difficult overtime uh, days on set and
1: sustained effort.
0: It's just a really long, sustained effort. And There's not a very clear light at the end of the tunnel. Those are often tough days, but I think the most difficult days were definitely where money is really low. I got like a few dollars, like I got like $5 in my bank account total and I like can't even pay for the next meal and somehow I have to make next month's rent or something like that. You know, you don't have a job lined up or something like that. And I felt pretty confident that jobs would come When they needed to come, that was, again, a big luxury on my end. Only really possible when I, when you have like a hard skill type of job, like cinematography, like you'll always need a cinematographer to shoot a movie. Short answer is when money ran low, things got pretty difficult. And I was definitely being encouraged by the family to like seek out different careers or something. Hmm. So then what was the motivation that kept you going? I think my mentality fresh out of film school was pretty much the main problem. It was like, things will work out.
1: Is that is that a problem, though, versus being it, no, overly it's, stressed? It's,
0: it's a good thing to have to a point, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like... When you're behind on rent and you're still saying like things will work out and you're like landlords, like looking over your shoulder going like, excuse me, what did you say? <laughs> I, I don't, you have to be proactive about finding ways of making yourself marketable, I guess, in in a job space, particularly out of film school. I don't know. I think a lot of people use social media to kind of market themselves in the film space. Not everyone has to. But like, it's pretty easy to do that as a cinematographer because it's like a one-to-one like indicator of like, oh, the image looks good. <laughs> yeah. That must mean they're a good cinematographer. I feel like for a producer, that's a little harder because it's like, okay, what part of this was you or something?
1: <laughs> yeah, or sometimes the most logistically complicated shoots are not the most cinematic, you know?
0: Yeah. So I, underst- I-, I feel like cinematography got really lucky in that regard. But... I guess it's also similar to the whole comment about film school. It's like you, it doesn't always have to be like, oh, this is like the world's greatest movie. It's just how you went about making the movie that like makes people want to work with you.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you have had periods where you're facing financial challenges and the future is unclear and people in your life were suggesting that you might want to try something alternative outside of film, but you didn't and you stuck with it. Why?
0: I mean, I just couldn't see myself doing anything else.
1: Yeah, there it is.
0: Yeah, I don't really know. Yeah, it's it's kind of just like that <laughs> for me. I don't know.
1: Okay, now I want to get into our time capsule segment. Basically, a big goal of this podcast, beyond just sharing practical experiences and individual stories, is to provide us a time capsule of your time and what you're up to and what your interests are, because it's so interesting to listen to podcasts of directors and and creatives much later in their career and hear about the early phase of their career before they were doing a lot of interviews and hearing what they were thinking about at that time, or maybe just what they'd forgotten, like stop motion club. So, so we're going to do past, present and future. So for past, if you could talk to yourself five years ago and think about what you were concerned about five years ago, what would you say?
0: Uh, stop worrying about trying to check off the box of shooting on a (laughs) techno (laughs) crane. Um, but you'd also tell yourself,
1: you, you do shoot on a techno crane though, don't worry.
0: No, yeah, like I've like literally <laughs> I, I regularly shoot on a techno crane now. Yeah, but the the irony is like that's not the uh, the end all be all. There's so much more that you can like hope for. It's not like that's like the pinnacle of your success as a cinematographer. Is like, oh, I got to shoot on a Technocrane, I can <laughs> die happy now. Like that's not, that's not, that's a pretty sad existence.
1: <laughs> what about ten years ago? Because five years ago, we're looking at twenty eighteen or a few years out of college. Ten years ago, you're just starting at USC. What would you say to yourself?
0: Uh, so ten years ago, mm-hmm. um, I don't even know if you would have known what a Technocrane was at that time. So no, um, but I. I would say the same thing I would still say, like literally myself right now, where I'm like, just be yourself and don't feel any shame for it. Mm. Because I definitely, you know, I definitely really wanted to fit in in film school. I definitely wanted to like the same things that other people liked. And if I liked something that nobody else liked, I was like super self-conscious about it.
1: Mm. Okay. So moving from past to present, what is your favorite song right now?
0: My favorite song.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if this is a film score that you are listening to. Well, okay,
0: just because it's like, it was a temp song. (laughs) It was like temp scored into Kodama. I'm just thinking about like, there's a song called Goodbye in the Arcane soundtrack. Mm. First of all, I really like Arcane. Um, And that song plays at a really pivotal moment in the movie, I mean, in in the show. And it's a good song. So
1: That's Goodbye from the series, Arcane. By Ramsey. What is the best movie you've seen in the last year?
0: It's a split between Everything Everywhere All at Once and Top Gun Maverick.
1: Mm. <laughs> Great choices. Which one do you think will win the Oscar? I have
0: no idea, but I hope Everything Everywhere All at Once does because I am so very much rooting for the Daniels. Everything that they do. Mm. Um, actually, they came into our music video class at USC to to, to give a talk back in like 2015, I don't remember, right before they, they did Swiss Army, man. They were super cool. I very much enjoyed their conversation.
1: Shout out to the Daniels. What food or drink item are you currently obsessed with?
0: I'm constantly drinking boba. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know if that will change in five years when we revisit. Oh no, yeah.
0: But uh, I don't, I think, wow, now that I think about the, um, Five years from now, Brian was like, what is he doing? We'll check in. Don't worry. We'll check in. The year is
1: 2028. Who is playing James Bond?
0: (laughs) They will put Idris Elba in a time machine so that he can be young enough to play James Bond because everyone wanted him to play James Bond by popular demand. And I think he'd be a really cool fit, but I think they were trying to find somebody who um, fits the role, but also could play it for the next like 10 years. Mm -hmm. So that's probably, I think that's the reason why they weren't going for
1: him. Okay. What is the latest piece of gear that you have learned to play with or has maybe replaced the Alexa or the Technocrane?
0: No, I mean, the Technocrane I feel really comfortable with now. And it's actually... A tool that I'm really... Okay, so when I first started using the Technocrane, they were on these music videos for this artist named Guy Tang. And since then, I have shot, what, like 26 or 27 music videos for this guy. Wow! Um, Each of them, like a good majority of them, we use a Technocrane on it. Mm -hmm. And so um, initially, when we first started using the Technocrane, uh, we would hire an op to, you know, operate the wheels. Um, so they're operate like there's a remote head at the end of the crane It's a telescope and crane and there, the remote head is operated with this device that has wheels on it and you have to turn it And like, it's almost like a Etch-A-Sketch, right? <laughs> um, but it's like big weighted wheels that you have to turn and like, you can program how quickly it influences the camera and stuff like that. But, um, it is kind of like, it's like, it's based off a of gear head. And so if you get good at a gear head, you can get good at like panning the camera around and You know, following the action really easily but the skill in order to get good at a gearhead is quite an acquired one like you can't just like go up to a gearhead and like learn it in like half an hour you have to like practice and after 26 27 music videos i am quite confident with the wheels now (laughs) and i'm really proud of that because um that did not come easy that is definitely a skill that um allows you to work on bigger projects because it entails that you're working on projects that can afford like techno cranes or like whatever so that would be
1: the latest piece of gear that you like to play with the
0: alexa 35 the brand new airy camera that came out um is phenomenal and it's Literally impossible to clip anything in the highlights. We actually used the Alexa 35 for a couple setups on Kodama. I know a friend of mine who's, he got sent the camera. He got sent a prototype and he brought it onto our production to kind of use it as a testing ground for the, you know, gathering footage and finding things to put into the area. Are those shots in the movie? Actually, no, (laughs) they're not. (laughs) But um, it was a cool... It was a cool uh, experiment to see the differences between the newest camera, the newest Alexa, and the Alexa Mini that we were using. And the differences were actually quite noticeable.
1: What are your current interests or hobbies? And I specifically asked this question for you because I know you develop specific interests like videos of boats crashing into each other
0: (laughs) i definitely have an interest in flight i want to get a pilot's license i want to resume my pilots pilot training i I think i get into like these these like very specific interests for the purposes of films that i want to make for example i just went on a deep dive into quantum physics (laughs) Because I wanted to understand what would happen if like a black hole opened up on the surface of Earth. <laughs> <laughs> because that's a that like an atom sized black hole on the surface of Earth is like the plot of one of the films that I want to make. Mm. As soon as I opened that can of worms, I started going mm. like, what is string theory? What is like quantum entanglement? String what theory is-, <laughs> is a
1: 2013 film by Brenton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you imagine that you will be living five years from now? Here in Los Angeles?
0: Yeah, most likely. But I, if I have a pilot's license by then, (laughs) I would like to think I use it. (laughs) Who are your dream collaborators? I don't know if this is good or bad, but I don't want to collaborate with somebody that I really respect if I know that there's a better option for them.
1: I I feel like we have to throw that mentality at you. Who who, who are you to decide that there's a better option if they Uh. have asked to work
0: with you? okay
1: we are kicking this mentality right now
0: this is true i i take that back
1: i think that's a good mentality to have if you didn't get chosen for a project because then you're able to say you you know the best person got chosen and i want the best for that project but if Mm. someone chooses you who are you to say that you're not the best person for the job
0: hey man shoot for the moon right
1: (laughs) so so who would be some collaborators that you'd like to work with
0: I just want to have a conversation with Chris Nolan. I don't have to work with him. I just want to have a conversation with him.
1: And if it was on set behind the monitor, you wouldn't complain. <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs>
0: there's the Jake Gyllenhaals of the world. There's the uh, the Christian Bales of the world. There's the... Uh, I feel like there's so many people that I, I feel like just starting to name people is just like, oh, I'm going to forget some somebody. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I think there's a lot of really great actors out there that... That I would want to work with.
1: Okay, last question. Five years from now, what do you think you're going to be looking back on in terms of what happens with Kodama?
0: I would want to feel like I put my best foot forward in trying to make Kodama into a feature. I don't want to like assume that everything went according to plan, (laughs) you know, but I think the biggest thing for me right now is that as long as I feel like I did my best in our trying to articulate and express myself as a director. That's all I can hope for. And it it doesn't have any bearing on like the actual product, like how it came out is just like, did I try my hardest to like make the best possible movie I could? Then that's all I can hope for.
1: Brian, thank you for being our guest today. Where can people connect with you online?
0: My Instagram is B underscore Tang.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for this conversation. It definitely went a lot longer than anticipated. So I appreciate (laughs) you taking the time and sharing your story with other people. I definitely hope others can learn something from your experiences. And I'm also looking forward to revisiting this in the future and seeing what predictions were true and how your interests have changed and your career has advanced since the time capsule. So thank you.
0: Thank you. This was, uh, this was fun.
1: Here's a recap of some key takeaways from my conversation with Brian. One, while tools and toys can help the look of a film, your value as a collaborator really lies in your ability to tell a visual story. Two, there is a difference between ambiguity and suspense. The audience wants to be in on the joke of knowing what the characters don't. Three, being kind and considerate of others is not only the right thing to do, it's in your best interest. When you are starting out, the way you go about making films matters much more than the movies themselves. Four, having an understanding of VFX can empower you as a director to build your vision rather than be restricted to the resources around you, regardless of genre. Five, having another skill set on set or in post can give you an advantage as a director by informing your directorial sensibilities as a collaborator, learning from watching other directors, and providing stability and networking between directing jobs. Six, any progress is still progress and making a decision purely based on how you think other people will perceive you usually will not help you in the long run. Seven, watch new and old movies with the mindset that there's no such thing as a bad movie. There are always good components to learn from and the things you don't like can not only teach you but inform your taste and shape your voice. And eight, if you are worried about being pigeonholed, create your own opportunities and let the work do the talking. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Set Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate it and share it with a friend, especially if you can think of someone who might benefit from the knowledge that was shared here today. You can keep up with the podcast on all social platforms at No Set Path Show or on the website at setpathshow.com. Thanks so much for being part of this community and we'll talk to you soon.